Okay, we're going way back to a movie from 1938 today in Old Chicago, which I had seen before because it is a Best Picture nominee from back then. And in my opinion, it's just kind of fine. Like, I don't have a problem with this movie, but it's not necessarily one I recommend. It, I actually think it's better than its uh, Rotten Tomato score, which is a 67 slash 54. I think that's about right. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Yeah. I, again, I, I don't really have anything I really like about it but like when a movie's this old my biggest thing is just like is it boring and i didn't think this movie is boring it's just not particularly great or good I, oh i, I thought it was boring it. oh okay okay it just it just wasn't interesting to me like the historical aspect was like the only thing that was kind of going to be interesting but then it was like all made up <laughs> oh that barely has anything to do with the movie at all and it's it's just kind of like they just use it as just kind of a background thing for this like family drama that oh right almost doesn't even need that it doesn't even need to be based on a real person or a real event at all like it other than the fact that there was a person named kate o'leary and there was a a chicago fire like nothing in this movie is has anything to do with anything historical like it's just a drama about this family true it's almost like why did this get connected to the Chicago fire at all? It's like you have this family story you want yeah. to tell, and then it, we can just end it with the Chicago fire. Yeah, we, you're right. It would work better if they had some overall arc that made sense for that. It, you're right. Shoehorn is probably the best way to... It's like, yeah. hey, let's do move up to O'Leary's because the story is that her cow started the fire, so we'll just make the whole story about a made-up version of the O'Leary family, and we can end with the fire. But why? Uh, I don't know. Right. And, <laughs> and it's... It would make more sense if it was like, oh, well, that was like, you know, a historical event that was like in the zeitgeist at the time, like that, that, whatever historical thing had just happened. But like, it was like 70 years before this movie came out. So it's like, what? I don't understand the... Yeah. I I don't understand why they decided to connect that in. It just... I don't know. Maybe maybe somebody on the one of the writers is like from Chicago or something, and like that's a big deal to them. But right, because it's actually so little about the fire. The movie goes to credits and says the end on the screen with the city engulfed in flames. Engulfed in flames. Yeah. Which I mean, that's kind of morbid, also too, and kind of an interesting way to end a movie with the people just like huddled in the in like Michigan with the town on fire. The end. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so yeah. I guess I can get being bored. I, I just feel like there's a lot of old movies, though, where it's just like, oh, nothing's happening. And this, at least, I mean, the characters aren't particularly likable, so that's not fun. But, like, there's at least kind of always something happening. And we get two good actors. There's the guys I'd recognize. Obviously, Tyrone Power, we had talked about before in, from Zorro. Mm-hmm. And then, are you familiar with Don Amici, who plays his brother, the lawyer? Um, I, I don't think so. He was fine, though. I mean... Well, so where he's interested... Don Amici's worth mentioning is in that... uh he's was kind of a, a star back then and then also still into the 80s so in the eddie murphy dan Aykroyd movie trading places have you ever seen that yeah i'm familiar yeah so the whole conceit and for the listener that you know that they the two rich rich guys make a bet that they could get these you know i forget exactly basically make the rich guy poor and the poor guy rich and they're kind of betting on the side well one of those two old guys making the bet is don amici Oh, okay. That's probably why I didn't recognize him then, because that would have it's like fifty, 50 years, years later. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm looking at a picture of him when he's like, you know, eighty, <laughs> probably in his seventies or eighties, right, right. and I recognize I recognize that guy. Right. 
I okay, didn't realize that was the same guy. So that so that's kind of fun. And then uh and then and a cameo that not a lot of people are familiar with is uh if you've also seen then coming to America, uh another Eddie Murphy mm-hmm. movie, there's a scene where he just kind of throws some money to some bums on the street. It's the same two old guys from trading places. Right, yeah. And they even kind of joke that oh, we're back. And so uh fun little Easter egg there. But anyway, yeah, so that is Don Amici and he's also in Cocoon. I don't remember him as much from Cocoon because I always think of uh, Wilford Brimley when I think of the old guys in Cocoon. But Don Amici is actually the first guy listed on the cast, um, so I think he's made. Oh, like, okay. I've, I've never seen Cocoon. No, so. it's I, I. I don't think it's anything special. It, it was kind of big at the time, but uh, yeah, I don't think it's it's uh, aged very well. Anyway, so yeah, Don Amici, kind of a star for decades there, even though he's not necessarily a household name. The movie did win a couple Oscars. The actress playing Mrs. O'Leary, one for Best Supporting Actress. And it won an Oscar for Best Assistant Director, which is a category that doesn't exist anymore. And I'm kind of confused on how you would even go about calculating who the Best Assistant <laughs> Director was. Um, obviously, we still have first ADs and all that kind of stuff today, but right, how would you ever know? <laughs> I don't know. Usually, usually the, the Best Director Oscar is like... It's kind of a an award, like it's for the director, but it's also kind of like best overall crew right. as well. It's kind of how Cause I, like, yeah, because yeah, like, where, where do you uh, where do you start making distinctions? Like, oh, we're gonna have an Oscar for the best key grip. Like, <laughs> how far down the line do you go? No, right, <laughs> and obviously, yeah, first ADs are very important, but it's just what they do is so hidden from everybody else who's not on set. So if you're not on set, how do you decide who the best AD is? Yeah, I don't know. Let's see, and it was nominated for best picture, like I said. So. Yes, but the film does give us an excuse to talk about the Chicago Fire, and Logan will talk about the O'Leary's a little bit. Uh, very, very fictionalized. Much of this film is fictionalized until we get to the fire at the end, starting at the O'Leary barn. But I want to talk just kind of about the history of Chicago in general. As we're kind of going through this project, it is kind of neat. Any chance we kind of get to just talk about important things that are still around in the United States today. So the modern city of Chicago wasn't incorporated until 1837. But there are references to the area uh, by Europeans uh, going back to the 17th century when the French were exploring the area. So the French were the first Europeans interacting with the Native Americans in the area. The modern name Chicago is kind of just a, you know, over decades and centuries, how names evolve. But so Mm -hmm. there was like a French version like Chicago or whatever. And and even that was kind of their version of a local native word for a, a there's like a variety of onion slash garlic that grows wild in this area and the native word hmm. that the french heard was like chicaqua and then that kind of oh, then evolves okay. and becomes eventually chicago it seemed to be mostly the potawatomi that were in the area when the europeans a lot arrived and there was early kind of maybe french presence but mostly it was kind of uh native controlled until the end of the 18th century beginning of the 19th century the man credited with being like the founder of Chicago, and I don't think he really got credit early on because he was black. So he was of French descent. Uh, we're not sure exactly where he was born. It's kind of believed maybe what is now Haiti. I don't think it, was, it wasn't Haiti back when he would have been born. Uh, guy's name is Jean-Baptiste Pont du Sable, or Sable, or however you say that. Basically, he just built his house on the Chicago River in the late 1700s, and since he was kind of first and is considered, he ended up even leaving like a decade later or less, but it's kind of just considered that him 
setting up there and kind of starting an initial trading post there is the beginnings of what would kind of grow into Chicago over the next several decades. So he is credited with being huh. uh, the founder of Chicago, basically just by virtue of being the first non-native person to settle uh, the area. But yeah, he was a kind of French Creole Caribbean uh, guy of African descent. So yeah, it, it did kind of quickly become uh, a trading hub. There was still uh, conflicts with the natives. A lot of times they kind of got along with them, but then when the U.S. kind of sets up a fort, the natives actually destroy that fort, uh, and they're forced to abandon it during the War of 1812. But the city endures and kind of picks back up, like I said, incorporated in the 1830s when it was just a small you know, trading hub of a, a few hundred people. And it just grew really quickly. By 1840, the population was about 4,000. And then the big boom comes in 1848, because in that same year, they completed a canal that connected Lake Michigan across the state of what is now Illinois to the Mississippi River. So you're now connecting. You think how the Great Lakes are all connected. You can now take stuff, say, from Buffalo through the Great Lakes to Chicago, and then across this canal to the Mississippi River all the way down to New Orleans. So that kind of opens up a huge trade hub there. And the same year, the railroads start coming in and connecting to Chicago. So that's both of those things happened in 1848. And that just makes it a massive new center uh, for trade in the country. And uh, the population just uh, explodes in the, in the city. Is it too soon? The city explodes. Uh, but uh, So from 1840 to 1870, in that 30-year span, so I mentioned about, it's about 4,400 in 1840, and then 30 years later, 300,000. So in 30 years, the population goes from basically 4,000 to 300,000. And actually, as we get into uh, the fire of 1871, Chicago was actually the fastest growing city in the world in like 1870, 1871, because of all this transportation stuff. I never thought of Chicago this way. It, it is kind of like, why is it, you know, like, because it's kind of like 30, kind of like New York, LA, Chicago, are like the three biggest cities in the United States. And mm-hmm. we always think of the coasts, and here Chicago is in the upper Midwest, Great Lakes area, as this massive, massive city. And it is because it is just this transportation hub where you have all the waterways connect to it, all the rail lines connect to it, all the roads connect mm-hmm. to it. When you get into the 20th century, all the airlines connect to it. You think about Chicago O'Hare International Airport. Like, it is just this transportation center. And back in the 1800s, it was basically all the eastern transportation networks their westernmost terminus was Chicago, and all the right. western United States uh, transportation uh, you know, networks, their easternmost terminus was Chicago. Right. So it really was this east meets west transportation hub. So yeah, when you, when you get this massive fire that you know, essentially destroys the city, we'll kind of talk about here. I mean, yeah, it just took time and money, but they just rebuilt, and now they were just kind of almost, in some ways, maybe in a blessing in disguise, and they could build back stronger and even like Mrs. Larry says at the end of the film, the city that was made of wood, it can now be rebuilt of steel. Obviously, she really didn't, I'm sure, didn't say that. But like that sentiment, in reality, that kind of is what happened. And uh, it yeah. kind of maybe cleared out some things that made Chicago, is, I guess, is it possible that it was a net benefit? That overall, Chicago in 1890 is way better off because that fire maybe cleared out some older stuff and almost like you think of like a forest in some ways where you kind of clear out that fires regularly kind of actually help Mm -hmm. worth worth considering yeah as far as everything being fictional in the film so like we see one of the o'leary boys you know run for mayor but the actual mayor uh during the fire of 1871 was roll mason or sorry roswell mason 
he was uh, very significantly not shot and killed during the chaos. <laughs> Uh, and lived uh, until 1892. Right, and in no way related to Kate O'Leary. Right, right. <laughs> there was a there was a mayoral a mayoral election uh, the month after the fire. So the idea mm-hmm. that the mayoral election and the fire were in close proximity timeline wise, that's true. Yeah, but I don't think didn't Roswell Mason was not in that it was no, two right. new candidates. He the incumbent didn't even run that year. Correct, correct. And yeah. the election was after the fire, not the other way around. Right. Right, yeah. But yes, yeah, the movie is just so fictionalized that, yeah, it's uh, basically just a launching point for us here. And so, there, and there's also no evidence of the massive corruption we see in the film. However, the fire did destroy a lot of the voter rolls, so there actually wasn't anything in place to stop people a month after the fire from voting multiple times because the voter rolls were gone. So right. we don't know, we don't have evidence of corruption, but if you were going to execute some corruption uh there probably wouldn't have been anything stopping you in uh, that 1871 election well and that's kind of a that's kind of a common thing i think in just american big cities at this time in general mm, just like true. we saw in gangs of new york right right like intimidation and all these things yeah committing voter fraud was pretty easy right. in you know the mid to late 1800s right yeah, I just I didn't read anything about it specifically with this election, but you're also not wrong that it was kind of happening everywhere, especially in larger cities. Yeah. So before I talk about the fire, why don't you talk about the actual Mrs. O'Leary that we see in the film? Yeah, there's actually not a lot <laughs> right. recorded about her in real life. Like she's basically the the thing that people know about her is oh she's she's the one whose cow started the fire. So she was she was born around 1827 um, in Ireland. No one knows for sure the, her exact birthday. Um, she did immigrate to the United States with her husband and her three kids, and they lived on a farm at 137 DeCoven Street in Chicago. And that is actually where the fire started, right. was in their barn. Although the idea that the fire was started by her cow um, was completely made up by a reporter named Michael Ahern. Um, and he actually admitted that in 1893, that he just... You know, he, he made up the story. There's no evidence that it was started by her cow. And actually, no one was ever able to determine what caused the fire in the first place. And I, apparently it was windy that night. So, like, there are theories that, like, it might not have even necessarily started in the barn at all. Like, it might have been a fire from somewhere else or a chimney or something. And then the barn was, like, what made it go big because all the dry straw and right, stuff like that right okay. so so embers and stuff could have been blowing and just landed in the barn and that was like the first structure to go up like no one knows no one was ever able to determine right so someone walking by flicks a cigarette into the barn and the whole thing goes up right right the cow, exactly the cow thing is just kind of a urban myth or whatever yeah yeah exactly yeah there were some reports from neighbors that indicated a conspiracy like that they had found a broken lamp or that some other Irish person came and like took the lamp to make it, you know, to oh. hide evidence of their. But none of that was ever verified, and most of it was basically ended up being chalked up to just anti-Irish sentiment mm. at the time in the 1870s. She did have one of her sons, James, went on to become this like famous gambling boss and saloon owner in Chicago. Oh, so that's similar to the Tyrone Power character, then in a way, kind of. But I think her sons were actually younger. At the time? Oh, like they were still kids during the fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, well, because and, I wasn't able to find any birth dates on them. Right, because yeah, they're not famous people And none of the all. names are right, the same. Right, right. and none of the names are the same. But they definitely, they definitely were not, like, 
she didn't have like three sons that were all like high society, big influential figures right. in Chicago. Like she had one son who was like a relatively well-known business owner in Chicago, but like not to the extent that we <laughs> that we see in the movie. Right, where he's like he's almost like a boss tweed character himself, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. The myth that she was somehow responsible for the fire uh, hung over her for the rest of her life. Um, mm. And one of her descendants said that she basically, she died heartbroken. That, like, that was the thing that she was, that was associated oh, with her. Yeah, that's yeah. sad. You don't think about that, yeah. It hung over her until her death in 1895. Um, although there was a uh, an amateur historian who, like, gathered a bunch of evidence and presented it to the Chicago City Council in 1997, and they did end up exonerating her, like officially exonerating her from starting the fire. Oh, nice. And again, that is, it's it's sad that those people don't get, you know, that recognition in their lifetimes, but it is kind of nice that the community at large recognizes that injustice and kind of respects right. and, and, and exonerates her. Um, and she had even testified at the time, though, that she was asleep at the time of the fire started or something, or at least, or at least in, in the house in bed, like, Definitely not milking her cow, right? Because it was like in the evening, right? Right. The the yeah. The, so there was like the story, like oh she was drunk, which again that's like an anti Irish thing. Mm. Oh she was drunk, you know, milking the cow, it kicked over the lamp, blah blah blah, whatever. But that like multiple people testified to her and her family, and I think neighbors too. Like I, it was one of the neighbors that noticed that her barn was on fire and went over and like knocked on her door. It was like, hey, uh, yeah, your your barn's on fire, right? So yeah, she she wasn't even in the barn um, at the time of the fire. Started. Right, right. Anyway. So it's just kind of a story that stuck. I'm trying to think. I feel like there's comparable things where everyone kind of knows the story but doesn't realize the story is not true. I'm sure we could think of a million examples. None are just kind of coming readily to mind here. But so the fire itself, it was just kind of set up. I mean, fire was a constant risk. This was a city built of wood. Like fires were a common thing. They just never been this massive before. And so... Not only was the city built largely of wood, as you're getting into October, people are also starting to store wood and coal for the winter. So you're basically just right. stocking up on fire fuel, literally, because it's for winter. And there was a drought that summer, too. Right. So right. everything was, like, super dry. Right. So once it kind of starts with the, the cow barn there. So the city had protocols in place. Like, there were fireboxes where you could go, it's like, you know, like, on the telephone pole there and, like, alert the authorities that you know there was a fire because this is kind of pre-telephone so i don't know exactly i don't know if it's just like you buzzes them i don't know how that works but there were fireboxes in place where you could like sound the alarm um and then there were also watchmen like you know in place just kind of looking or if someone alerted them they could look out and so right so the spotter you know the report comes in from like people near the o'leary's a watchman like you know looks out to see you know okay where is this fire at and then he telegraphs the like the firehouses the problem is right. he didn't telegraph the nearest firehouse to the O'Leary's. And so mm. by the time the firemen get on the scene, it's still pretty quick if you think about it being 1871, but it is 20 minutes later, basically after it had been reported before the firemen uh, get to the scene. So yeah. 20 minutes in these conditions we're talking about is just not fast enough. And uh, by the time the firemen show up, the entire block was already engulfed in flames. Right. And it was windy, because again, Chicago in the wind. Uh, so the wind is just very easily pushing this fire kind of both north and east toward the river at the same time. And they were just kind of hoping like, okay, well, the river is a barrier. We'll be able to contain it. <laughs> the river was so polluted with like yeah. oil, grease and stuff like, you know, so the river caught fire. 
So the right. Chicago River is burning. And then, of course, then right. it's able to cross to the other side of the river and just start catching everything else. Uh, it actually crosses the, another branch of the river, tears through the downtown business district. The fire is just so massive, it just starts creating its own like wind system. And there's almost like these little fire tornadoes. Like It's just this massive, massive fire wind. Like It's just... It's bad. It's bad. Uh, it takes out the town's water supply. The people didn't even know which way to run from it because the fire is just kind of spreading everywhere so fast. You don't even know which way to find safety. Yeah. I think it's remarkable that only uh, about 300 people were believed to have died. Right. They only found about 120 bodies, but they're pretty confident that closer to 300 were killed. But, man, that to me, that seems fortunate when you think about by the time... Uh, you know, it's all said and done, 100,000 people were left homeless. And, you know, I, I right. saw different accounts, seventeen to 18,000 buildings destroyed, all the banks, all the businesses. I mean, just, it was just massive. And then so we're actually not even sure exactly what stopped it. Two things kind of happened at the same time, and either one or both combined could be what ultimately ended the fire. Because it was not the firefighters. It was just too big. Like, at some point, they're just outmatched. Yeah. And so, and we see that today fighting wildfires out in California where our, our yep. with all our modern technology is just you fires are just too hard to uh, wrangle. So a cold front did come through and a gentle rain settled over the city. And so that definitely helped, mm. but that might, it might've actually just been as simple as the fire burned everything it could. There was nothing left to burn and the fire died out. Like, yep. so both those things kind of happened at the same time. Cause didn't the fire burn? It was like a, it wasn't even like just a one night thing. It was like a couple days. Uh, it's thirty hours. Thirty hours. Okay, so, thirty hours. So basically, from when it was reported to when it's kind of considered out was yeah, thirty hours. So over over a okay. full day. And again, like so, yeah, the wildfires in California last for much longer, but they're also out in the wilderness. This is in a city, right. a f- yeah. raging fire for thirty hours. That's right. that's an eternity. Yeah. But yeah, as I kind of said earlier, you know, in a sense, you could say it kind of helped the city hit reset and build back better. And the two ones that came to mind immediately for me, uh, we see this a lot. We, you know, I live in Kansas here in, you know, Tornado Alley or whatever. Greensburg, Kansas, if you drive through it today, it was destroyed by that 06, 07, uh, very famous tornado that kind of wiped out most of the city there. Very small town, obviously. But you go through it today. It just has a very different feel to all these other small towns in Kansas that have these, you know, 100, 150-year-old right. main streets. Greensburg right. is an old town that looks like it was built a decade ago because it kind of was. Right. Yeah. Because everything in the town has been built since 2007. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's just kind of unique that it's this small little old town that has a brand new looking main street and it's odd. Um, and the other one that I thought was similar when I visited uh, Normandy and was staying in uh, Caen for a few days, I thought, man, it's remarkable that this old city, that this city in France feels so modern. And then I'm realizing like, oh, because a lot of it was destroyed during World War II. So yeah. a similar kind of thing. It was It's much more modern than a lot of other cities because it was more destroyed than a lot of other cities. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so because of the chaos and all the destruction, the city was put under martial law initially right after the fire under the command of General Sheridan, who we do see briefly in the film. And so you were going to tell us a little bit more about General Sheridan. Yeah, so this is going to be, it's kind of a little bit of a rewind back to the Civil War. Which which ended only six years before the fire, so it's not like this is a massive... Right, I, I meant like rewind in the no, right. in our in our episodes. Right. So General... 
Philip Sheridan. He was born uh, March 6, 1831 in New York. He grew up in an immigrant family um, and worked in his family's store as a clerk and a bookkeeper as a kid. He went to West Point in 1848 and graduated in 1853, which for uh, any listeners or uh, rich if you're doing the math real fast you'll notice that's five years not four years he was suspended for a year his i think it was his junior year for fighting another student but then was allowed to was allowed to come back and finish and then graduated in in 1853 i i was just uh thinking more like that probably overlapped with jeb stewart then right like would it have been about a year apart or so um i was thinking stewart was 54 but i could be wrong on that too yeah i'm not sure so uh sheridan is one of the guys he is in yeah. uh, uh santa fe uh, trail santa fe trail he's one of the the numerous right. you know famous uh generals that they that they put in that class right. as you know as characters for that movie okay yeah it would have overlapped with stewart's time because his freshman year was 18 wait no hang on okay he graduated in 1854 so he would have been one year behind Sheridan. Sheridan. And that was also the time that Robert E. Lee was the right, superintendent right. of West Point as well. So he graduates in 1853, gets his commission, um, and he is initially posted up in the Oregon Territory, uh, Washington, Oregon um, area today, uh, participated in the Yakima and Rogue River Wars against Native American tribes up there in the Pacific Northwest. When the Civil War broke out, he was moved to Missouri, to St. Louis, and he started out as a quartermaster and kind of more of like a staff officer position and not necessarily a, a combat leader. He was actually arrested in 1862 for refusing to assist other officers in profiteering. Hmm. Um, so basically other officers, there were other Union officers who were, you know, after raids and stuff, were stealing civilian horses. And then selling them to the army for profit to make money. Oh wow! So he, since he was the quartermaster, they would bring you know there were officers showing up with horses saying, "Hey, here's this contraband. You know, I want you to pay me because I'm like providing this to the Union war effort." And he said, "No, like you stole those horses. I'm not going to pay you for them," and refused. And because it was all the officers that were doing it, it was kind of like a you know, they, they were so powerful that they thought they could get away with anything. And so he was actually arrested for refusing to obey the orders of these officers. Huh. But he was good friends with uh, one of the highest ranking officers in the army at the time, Major General Henry Halleck, who kind of like helped make the charges go away. Interesting. So despite having no experience with cavalry, he was promoted to colonel and placed in charge of the 2nd Michigan Cavalry in May of 1862. He fought in the Battle of Boonville in Mississippi. And performed so well, he was promoted to Brigadier General. Shortly after Boonville, uh, he got the horse um, that he's kind of famously known for riding. He rode the same horse for the entire rest of the war. Uh, The horse's name is, I think it's pronounced Rienzi. He named the horse after a battle that he fought, uh, or that took place in Mississippi. Um, He rode the horse for the rest of the war. And actually, today, that horse is stuffed. And it's on display at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. So you can go see Phil Sheridan's horse. Oh, man. Taxidermy is so... It's like, it's cool that it's still around, I guess. But it's also kind of cringe. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this, <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't know. It, it is it is kind of weird because it's like... I would think that that would be strange. Like, if my pet 
died. Right. And then I got it stuffed. I would be like, oh man. But people do that. And people do that. Oh, I know. I know. And it's it's just one of those things that it's like to me that's very strange. But yeah, I don't know. So I mean, like, it, it's different in a museum, I guess. When I say that kind of story, like, like we we didn't really think Ghosts in the Darkness were as cringe and a similar kind of thing. But I don't know. Yeah. Huh. But those aren't those aren't pets. And like no, I also right. like I don't think it's I don't think it's weird if you you know go into people's houses they have like a stuffed deer head or a stuffed elk head or you know you go into like old like hunting lodges and stuff and they have all the stuffed heads or like you know the fish on the walls like I that stuff isn't weird to me. I I actually think that's kind of cool. Um, when you see that stuff it's almost like it's more acceptable when it's the trophy from you know battle or hunting or you know again ghost in the darkness so it's like it's almost right. like you know the bearskin run of the bear bearskin rug of the you know the the bear you protected your family from but all of a sudden when it's something you liked it's like oh now it's weird <laughs> right well to, to me it's weird but i could also see how he's like oh no i really like this horse so when it died i don't just want to bury it in the ground I'm gonna have it stuffed so I can always go visit my friend. It's like okay, I like I can I can see right, that. Right, but the moment you cross it over to people, it's like whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, no, <enough> about taxidermy. <laughs> anyway, so uh, he was uh, given command of the cavalry corps for the Army of the Potomac after Grant was made general in chief. Um, so he was actually directly in charge of uh, General Custer. Okay, at, at that time. He was placed in charge of the Army of the Shenandoah in 1864, which was charged with expelling Jubal Early, uh, the Confederate general, from the area around Washington, D.C. in the Shenandoah River Valley. And he actually used tactics in that campaign similar to Sherman's March to the Sea, kind of a scorch earth tactic where they would burn farms and tear up rail lines and all that stuff. Uh, But instead of being in Georgia, it was in uh, Virginia in a campaign called The Burning. After the Shenandoah campaign, he rejoined the Army of the Potomac at the end of the war for the Appomattox campaign because he wanted to... He could see that uh, Lee's kind of like on his heels. You know, we're we're gonna end up beating him eventually, and I want to be there for that. So he joins the, the Army of the Potomac for the end of the war. After the war, he was stationed in Texas during the Reconstruction period, and he actually... And this is kind of a a long story to get into, but there was almost a war with France, like right after the end of the Civil War, Hmm. because of Napoleon III, Emperor Napoleon III, he was backing an Austrian archduke who had a claim over Mexico, and there was a kind of a border dispute with this archduke. And then Texas. And so Grant told Sheridan to like basically make a show of force. So he like he uh, reinforced all the coastal cities in Texas and marched like 50,000 troops to the border as a deterrent against a French backed Mexican force. And that war ended up not happening like they uh, they ended up backing down. But yeah, I, I didn't know that until looking into Sheridan that. The U.S. almost went to war with France right after the end of the Civil War. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't think I, I didn't know that either. So during his time in Texas, he was very disliked by Texas or by Texans and all the administrators that he was dealing with. And he was not liked very much by President Johnson either. Uh, there's actually a quote 
where uh, Sheridan said, if I owned hell and Texas, I would live in hell and rent Texas out. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a, a, a funny way of, <laughs> of uh, describing exactly how much he hated Texas. <laughs> so he was removed from Texas by President Johnson and sent out west. He participated in the Indian Wars um, that we talked about last week when we were discussing Custer, uh, the Red River War, the Ute War, and the one that he is most famous, the Great Sioux War, which is, you know, with the Little Bighorn. So during his time out west, there's this, I don't know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people that accuse Sheridan of, like, well, I, I don't know how I want to say this. <laughs> He was for sure like not a fan of Indians. He would, you know, call them savages. So he he was definitely not a fan of the Indians, but there are some accounts that I think go further than what he actually felt. So I have this quote and it's kind of long. It's on his Wikipedia page, but it's it's a quote from so it's from the Kansas Historical Society. Oh, okay. But it says, Sheridan has been accused of being unnecessarily cruel, bent on exterminating the Indian. Although he did regard the Indians as savages, whose one profession was that of arms, he felt that it would take more than just confining them to reservations to settle in the West. It would also be necessary to, quote, exercise some strong authority over him, meaning the the Indians, Mm. although not as sympathetic to the Indians' plight as some other army officers. He did say, we took away their country and their means of support, and against this they made war. Could you? Could anyone expect less? So basically, he's like, I'm following the orders and kicking them out of their lands, and, you know, they are savages, but, like, there's, like, all these army officers, like, well, you know, why are they so mad at us, basically? Like, oh, what are, you know, it's like, because we're kicking them out of their, their land, right, and we're taking right. away all of their stuff, and, like, of course they're going to fight us. So he did agree, however with most soldiers when he blamed the government for the failure of the reservation system. He said it was up to Congress to, quote, furnish the poor people from whom this country had been taken with sufficient food to enable them to live without suffering the pangs of hunger. This is hardly the attitude that one would expect from someone who is purported to say, as Sheridan was, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. He was above all else a soldier, and in response to some of his critics, he stated, My duties are to protect these people. I have nothing to do with the Indians but in this connection. The wife of a man at the center of wealth and civilization and refinement is not more dear to him than is the wife of the pioneer or of the frontier. I have no hesitation in making my choice. I am going to stand by the people over whom I am placed and give them what protection I can. So... Basically, his whole thing is like, I'm just following orders. I just want to make sure that these people that are getting in their covered wagons and going out west are able to do so and not be, you know, attacked and killed. Now, he completely divorces that from the, like, well, should they be there in the first place? And his whole thing is, it doesn't matter. Like, that's not my... It's the true soldier's line. Right. Ours is not the reason why ours is but to do or die. I mean... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he also has no qualms with saying, oh, yeah, like, the reservation system is a mess. The government is completely complicit in, you know, in the the misery Mm, of the natives. But, yeah, he's like, that's... Basically, that's 
above my pay grade. That's above my pay grade and outside my wheelhouse, and that's not that's not what I'm here for. Right. So very much of his time and understands kind of both sides of it, but but also understands I'm on this side of it. So it is what it is. Right. Yeah. And so and there's there is that quote um, that is mentioned in the the quote that I read that is uh, sometimes attributed to Sheridan that says, you know, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. So Sheridan denied that he ever made that statement. And that's also not the way that that statement was recorded. So the way that it was actually recorded was when he was talking to a Comanche chief, the chief was said to have told Sheridan, like, I'm a good Indian, to which Sheridan said, the only good Indians I ever saw were dead. Which That's different, right. It's subtle, but it's different. Yeah. It is different than saying the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Because that means your goal is to go out and kill them, versus the way it was actually said is more like, well, I don't really like them, but I get along with the ones that aren't alive. Like, that's that's different. <laughs> right, and I, I even thought that, like, it could also be read as, like, you know, the good ones are the ones that are fighting, you know, oh. the, the ones that died. Like, those are the good ones. I gotcha. Which, yeah, yeah, know, yeah. Again, it's it's not it's not great. No, like, that's no, no, still, no, no, right. But it's almost like a noble thing, right? But it's it's it it is different than the genocidal than saying the only the only good Indian is a dead Indian, right? The way it's often quoted is basically genocidal. Yeah, but in any case, he denied ever saying that. Hmm. Uh, anyway, okay. So after the Plains Wars, he traveled to Europe to observe the Franco-Prussian War in 1870 as a guest of King Wilhelm I of Prussia, which is kind of interesting because he was present when Napoleon III surrendered, and like that, there was that whole conflict with him in Texas. Like He just happened to be the general that was marching the troops out, so I thought that that was kind of like an interesting coincidence of history. In 1871, uh, just like we see in the movie, he coordinated military relief efforts after the Great Chicago Fire. He was placed in charge of the city for a few days um, after the mayor declared martial law in order to prevent a panic. But it was only a couple days because basically it was just it was done out of a, an abundance of caution. And then when the mayor saw, oh, okay, actually everyone's chill dealing with this relatively well, he's like, all right, we're, martial law is maybe uh, a little bit of overkill. Sheridan was also a very big fan of Yellowstone. He lobbied for the protection of Yellowstone very heavily and lobbied for it uh, remaining a national park. Well, uh, national park isn't even the right thing because they did, that didn't even exist at the time. But basically, he didn't want any development. He didn't want it to. Didn't want a bunch of railroads going through it. He didn't want a bunch of like settlements and stuff popping up. He wanted it to remain how it was, and he liked it so much that when the area of Yellowstone was being kind of mismanaged by incompetent administrators, he ordered the military, he ordered the U.S. 1st Cavalry into the park, and they actually, the military controlled the park until the formation of the National Park Service in the early 1900s. Worth noting, though, so like, it times out about the right. Yellowstone was established as like our first national park March of 1872. So actually just like a few months after the Chicago fire. So it actually might have been a national park right. when he was uh Okay, so maybe maybe it was Yeah. Maybe honestly it was probably had a lot to do with right. Sheridan because That's what he, I'm thinking. he's one of the biggest supporters of keeping Yellowstone the way it is. And there's actually there is a uh, a mountain 
in uh, Yellowstone called Mount Sheridan that's named after him. And there's, and there's uh, I'm just looking, there's a Camp Sheridan as well. Yeah. So in uh, 1888, his health started to decline. He had gained a bunch of weight, getting up to over 200 pounds, which doesn't sound like a lot until you remember that he's only five feet five inches tall. Mm. So 200 pounds is he's big, and not uh, and processed sugar wasn't a thing yet <laughs> in the same way. Right? Yeah, and, and we're not talking, you know, like a bodybuilder 200 pounds. It's like he just got real fat, and he had a series of massive heart attacks one of which ended up killing him on mm. June 1st, 1888. He is buried at Arlington, um, and his headstone faces Washington, D.C. After he died, his wife, Irene, never remarried, and I thought it was kind of sweet. She was quoted after his death as saying, I would rather be the widow of Phil Sheridan than the wife of any man living. Oh, nice. I thought that was kind of nice. There are uh, a lot of things named after Sheridan. Like I said, Mount Sheridan at Yellowstone is named after him. The M551 Sheridan tank is named after General Sheridan, as well as Fort Sheridan, the neighborhood in um, Chicago, is also named after uh, Sheridan. There are a multitude of Sheridan counties, including Sheridan County, Kansas, which is named after Phil Sheridan. And there's a Sheridan Hall at Fort Hayes State that is named after Phil Sheridan. And then my last little note here, little historical fact. There was a $10 bill that was printed that had his face on it, and he's the only person to appear on the $10 bill that is associated only with the military and not with politics. So there are other people, like, there are people on the 10 who had time in the military, but usually... Like Grant. Or sorry, or sorry, on the 10 specifically, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking thinking any currency, my bad. Yeah, so the 10, it's Hamilton, right, is on the 10? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So he like he was in the military, but he's more known for his political stuff and right. you know being the first secretary of the treasury. General Sheridan only associated with the military and he's the only person to be on the 10 that is not associated with politics. Hmm. Right, he's never, never ran for office like a lot of these uh, guys do, right? Right. Yeah. And uh it yeah, worth noting so uh, Grant was president at the time of the Chicago Fire. You could argue we've kind of maybe flipped these last couple episodes cuz the Chicago Fire was 1871 and the Battle of Little Bighorn was 1876. Uh, it's kind of just more a consequence of how much time passes during the movies. So Little Big Man covered, you know, it went all the way back to like 1858. Of course, I tell you, this movie went back to 1854 when we see the O'Leary family coming to Chicago in the first place. But most of it is set 1867, 1871. And then Little Big Man, obviously fictional too, but covers the decades of 50s, 50s and 60s as well. So in a lot of ways, they're kind of more just concurrent movies. And uh, we won't, I guess, quibble too much about when we put them in our timeline. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to mention was they call the area where the O'Learys live the Patch. And a lot of the mm. just kind of plot of the film deals with uh, the Patch and advocating for that, you know, politically. And um, Diane, which I thought was an interesting name, a kind of a unique name. The uh, Tyrone Power character's, uh, character's name is Diane, D-I-O-N. Right. Which I... I I don't know if that's an Irish name. It's not a name I've really heard much. Yeah, I, th- I think it's. Uh, it sounds Irish. Yeah, and so I was looking at it. It, it kind of. Lo- I couldn't find anything too definitive. It actually was saying like uh, an article I found that multiple areas in Chicago were kind of nicknamed the Patch over the years. Um, maybe even something to do with local cabbage patches. Uh, but there was one that kind of fits that was established in the 1850s as kind of the O'Learys and other Irish immigrants were coming to Chicago. It was roughly in the same area. So it, it, it does seem 
mostly accurate that this area may have been called the Patch at that time with the Irish living there. But it was, you know, also had other names. Uh, there was, I forget, the, I didn't write down the Irish name that that, that neighborhood had. The other thing, too, that kind of confused me a little bit is uh, anytime they show a map in the movie, a lot of times you see a map of basically early Chicago or Chicago, you know, in, in, the, in the 1870s here. They're, it's sideways. North isn't up. They put west at the top of the map so that, like, Michigan is at the bottom. And it took me a while to figure out that's what was going on because I was so used to, like, maps are supposed to have north at the top. But a lot of these maps right. had west at the top so that, like, Michigan was at the bottom with Chicago sitting on top of it. So I kind of get why, but it was also confusing me just trying to or Because even in the film, they kind of show the map of the patch and the river and all that. It's west is up at the top of the map. So... If, if that's confusing anybody else, uh, like it was confusing me. <laughs> and the Chicago River had actually been, by this time, rerouted and stuff. Like, they very much manipulated the area over the course of the uh, 19th century to kind of optimize, even like changing the flow of the Chicago River and adding tributaries just kind of to make it work for the city as, as well as possible. Uh, yeah, I think that's everything I had. Anything else? No, this was a pretty uh, pretty light one as far as historical stuff yes yes yeah just kind of one event but it gave us an opportunity to talk about uh chicago not much more to say i guess so uh we're gonna kind of stay in the great lakes region though as we look at the early days of the steel industry in pennsylvania with the sean connery film the molly mcguire so stay tuned for next time <laughs> 